Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Miller. I'm a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Jana Vrangalova, a sex researcher, speaker, writer, and consultant. She currently teaches human sexuality courses at New York University and also runs a course called Open Smarter, which helps people figure out which type of relationship is right for them based on science. Jana and I go way back. In fact, she was one of the first people I met at my very first sex research conference. We had a shared interest in translating sex science for the general public, and we wrote for some of the same outlets, so we initially connected over that. But over the years, we started collaborating on a series of events and projects, and we worked a lot together. In the first half of today's program, we're going to be talking about Jana's research on casual sex. Specifically, we'll be exploring how common casual sex really is, what people's experiences with it are like, and how to have better casual sex. In the second half, we'll talk about Jana's work on consensual non-monogamy and how to customize your relationship in a way that's right for you. I can't wait to dive into this conversation, so let's get to it. Hi, Jana, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, Justin. So nice to be here. Such a lovely introduction. Well, thank you for joining me. I do have to say it's a little bit weird for me being on the other side of the interview table because you've interviewed me a few times for your podcast in the past, but I haven't had a chance to interview you yet. So this is a new experience. Yes, it's overdue, but it's going to be a lot of fun. So before we dive into the world of casual sex, can you please tell us a little bit about your professional journey? So how did you wind up being a sex researcher and educator? I was always very sexual from as long as I can remember. It was a big part of my own life and development and growing up in a fairly conservative culture in Macedonia, a small country in Southeast Europe. It was kind of obvious that I was different from other people because of my sexual curiosity and interest in things that were not necessarily within the box of what I was supposed to be interested in. So I was kind of curious about casual sex and non-monogamy and non-heterosexuality and kink and all these things that kind of existed on the margins of our sexual and relationship spheres. And I went, I did my undergrad in psych in Macedonia. And toward the end of that, I always knew I wanted to do a PhD. I didn't necessarily know what I wanted that PhD to be in. But toward the end of my studies, I was like, what's that one thing that's going to keep my interest for the rest of my life, right? Because when you go and do a PhD, you're kind of stuck with that topic. I mean, I guess you don't have to be, but if you're going to spend five, six, seven years of your life doing this, then you kind of stuck with that topic. So it was a no brainer. It was like, obviously it had to be sex. I wanted to study sexuality. I wanted to understand more about how people make sexual decisions, especially those of us who exist kind of on those margins. How do we navigate the stigma? How do we navigate the lack of role models for how to live our lives in a way that's healthy and safe and ethical and how do we stay how do we stay healthy how do we maintain mental health and well-being while being kind of on the on the wild side and so i ended up doing a phd at cornell with 
Professor Rich Savin Williams, who studies sexual orientation, because one of my research interests was in the non heterosexuals, especially the mostly straights and the bisexual folks, the people who are kind of in the middle. And then I also did some, my own personal interest in casual sex and non monogamy kind of then took me in, in that direction. And so I did my doctoral research on casual sex and mental health. And toward the end of my studies, I kind of became interested in translating the science to broader audiences, kind of getting out of that ivory tower where five people will read your paper and maybe if you're lucky, (laughs) if you're lucky, it's a really good paper or you have a sexy, very sexy topic or something. But I could see the interest that regular non-academic people had in the fruits of our labor and wanted to do a little bit more of that. So I decided not to go into tenure track academia and to kind of combine teaching classes at the university. So as you said, I teach at NYU, but then also doing these different kinds of things through speaking, writing, podcasting, online courses, and other avenues for translating the science and in a way that's useful to people, in a way that that can actually be applied to their lives. Yeah, I think it's so interesting that there are so many sex researchers who really only do work for their peers to consume. And there's very little in the way of that translational component. And it's like, you're studying things that are so important to the average person and odds are they're probably never going to find it. You know, most people don't have the attention span or desire to read a dense academic journal article to learn about sex. And so there's really a need for more of that translation of the science of sex and relationships. And so you know, I'm kind of similar in that way that I recognize that that's a need and I found that I actually really enjoy it. I have a passion for it. And it's also very rewarding because you can see the real world impact of your own work when you take it and translate it for other people. And just out of curiosity, have you gotten, and I assume that you have a lot of positive feedback from people where you've helped them to have difficult conversations for the first time in their life or change their relationship in some way? Oh my God, so much, so much. When you go out and talk to people and regardless of the avenue that I've taken to do that translation. So I've gotten those kinds of feedback on written articles. I was getting that kind of feedback when I was doing my own podcast, the Science of Sex podcast. I am getting that feedback so much now that I have been hosting these conversations about sex and relationships that I call uncensored with Dr. Jana, where people from all over the world kind of come into the room, come into the Zoom room, and we talk about a specific topic and the need for giving people accurate information about how sex and relationships work. Accurate, non-judgmental information. Yeah, that's the second piece. Yeah, non-judgmental, creating a non-judgmental, accepting, normalizing, destigmatizing space where you basically say, no, it's okay. It's okay that you have those feelings. It's okay that you've had those experiences. And then there's something very unique about the group discussions, like the uncensored format, where they can actually hear other people 
who also have had those experiences or feelings or thoughts, and that really normalizes it even more. So I'm finding now that this combination of science and like the scientific authority that I bring to say, this is okay, this is normal, here's how it works and it's normal, and then of hearing other people say, um, I'm like that too. Yeah, I'm kind of like that too. Like that combo is incredibly transformational for people. And especially when we're talking about something that is so stigmatized and so many people feel so alone in those desires. I mean, you know, you know, from your research on all the fantasies, the book that you wrote, how many different sexual desires and fantasies people have. And so much of that, they feel so ashamed and guilty and like they're the only ones. And when you can help normalize that for them, it feels so good. (laughs) So good. (laughs) It, It does. And thank you for creating that space for people to often have that opportunity for the very first time in their life. You know, so many people hide their wants and desires, even from their long-term relationship partners, sometimes for decades, and really deny themselves the the sex life that they want and that they deserve. So we appreciate the work that you do, Jana. Thank you for coming on and being a guest and contributing to that. <laughs> and you're most welcome. So let's talk casual sex. And I think is a good starting point, let's talk about what casual sex is. Because I think when a lot of people hear that term, it conjures up this idea of a one-night stand, but that's really just one of many forms that casual sex can take. So what does it mean to have casual sex, and what are the most common flavors of it, if you will? (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. It means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I actually teach sometimes one of my classes that I teach at NYU is the psychology of casual sex. And so we have a whole two and a half hour conversation about what is casual sex. (laughs) (laughs) And as I said, different people will define it differently. And for some people, as you said, it is this very casual option of one night stand with someone you barely know, and you're never going to see again kind of thing. The way I think of it is, is it's a continual of casualness in terms of how well you know someone, in terms of how emotionally attached or close you feel to someone, how romantically committed you might be to maintaining a relationship with that person. So you can kind of think of it as existing along a few different continua even. And it can range from something that's completely, completely, completely 100% casual, like that one night stand with someone whose name you don't even know who you like picked up from the subway or maybe you were at a sex party and literally there was nothing but eye contact and that's it let's fuck kind of thing but then there are all these other somewhat less casual versions of that like friends with benefits would kind of be toward the end of that casual continuum but you know fuck buddies or casual lovers, people you might see every now and then, but that you don't have a lot of connection or communication with in between those meetings and could be a short fling with someone that you meet during a vacation and maybe you spend a couple of days together and then maybe you never see each other again, or maybe you have some very minimal communication afterwards. And then there's the friends with benefits, which you've done tons of research on that is kind of this 
combination of friendship where there is some level of emotional connection, perhaps some level of commitment to maintaining a friendship and some amount of non-sexual interaction and communication that also has a sexual component sometimes. So it's my big umbrella kind of definition for what casual sex is, is sex with someone you're not in a committed romantic relationship with. And there are so many kind of different flavors of that, as you said. Yeah. And I I like the way that you described that, that there are some continua involved there, or you can think of it as a spectrum, you know, that varies in your emotional attachment to the other person, your familiarity with them. And so casual sex means a lot of different things. And there are different levels of casualness. And within that, there are you know, not all types will appeal to all people. There, I know a lot of people who really love one night stands, but they're not that big of a fan of friends with benefits. And I know kind of the opposite, you know, people who could and do enjoy these more casual loverships with people that may go on for years without ever becoming really romantic in a serious relationship sort of way, but they're not interested in the purely casual one night stand scenarios. Yeah. So how common is casual sex? Like, is this something most people have done before and is it increasing or decreasing? What do we know about the prevalence of casual sex today? And I know like the prevalence is different during COVID than it was during pre-COVID times. Like there's not a lot of it going on right now, but, you know, prior to this pandemic setting in, you know, kind of what was our sense of, you know, how common this behavior is? Yeah, I think it definitely has decreased on a global level in this past yeah. year, massively so. <laughs> the prevalence of it, and I don't know, you might have some additional data too, but it really depends on how we define it. Because if you define it in that super narrow way as a one night stand with someone you barely met, and then you throw in, right, because we just talked about how you define casual, but then there's the whole conversation of how you define sex. Is penetration sex? Is oral sex sex? Does a making out session count in, have you ever had casual sex or a hookup? So depending on how the question is asked across the different studies, you get vastly, vastly different responses. I remember an older study, I think it was from the 2000s or so, where they asked women at a university to tell them if they've ever had penetrative sex with someone they knew for less than 24 hours, if they've had penetrative sex with someone they were not in a romantic committed relationship, if they've made out with someone who they just met and made out with someone. So there were these four kind of different. And from the most restrictive to the least restrictive definition, there was a huge difference. I think it was something like less than 20% of the women said they've had penetrative sex with someone they just met, but something like 80% of them said that they had like a kind of a makeout session with someone who they weren't in a romantic relationship with. So it really depends. I think the yeah. less restrictive definition, a, a lot of people, many people have had that and It's something that is often experienced early on in teenagers' kind of sexual careers. 
So it's a fairly common experience, but I'm always hesitant to give a number because I don't know what that number is depending on what the definition is. Yeah. And it's so true because it really depends on what that definition of sex is. And, you know, the term hookup, the term casual sex, it's such a nebulous term in the sense that it means so many different things to different people, which points to the fact that this is actually a pretty hard thing to study. And when you're looking across different studies in this area, you really have to look at how did the researchers define that because sometimes the researchers are using drastically different definitions. Some of them are very expansive and comprehensive and others are much more restricted. And so sometimes it's a little hard to make sense of that literature. What number would you throw out? (laughs) Again, I'm hesitant to peg like a specific number, but I think if you're sort of collapsing across different forms of casual sex, it's certainly something that a majority of people have done, but there's a lot of variability in looking at specific types. The, The numbers that I'm most familiar with, I think are for the friends with benefits thing. So have you ever had sex with a friend? And when you look at data on this over time, you see that it has increased. And so more people are having sex with their friends than they were in the past. Um, And it's been a pretty sizable increase where it's, I forget the specific number, but it's somewhere around 50% or so of people today who are reporting they've had sex with a friend before. And the number was much lower in the past. So it tells us that at least the friends with benefits type is becoming more common. But based on what you hear in the media and everything about hookup culture, it makes it seem like everybody's having casual sex all the time. But when you look at the reality of the numbers, it's not happening quite as often as that media narrative would lead you to believe. And speaking of that media narrative, I think we need to talk about some of the other things that come out of it. And one of them being this idea that casual sex is like necessarily bad for you right? You see a lot of articles that say it's unhealthy, it's damaging, people feel pressure to do it, they regret their experiences, it's replacing quote-unquote real relationships. So what have you found in your research about how casual sex affects people? Does it match up with that narrative at all? That bothers me to no end, (laughs) (laughs) That, that presentation of casual sex in the media. That black or white narrative really irks me because nothing is black or white. And right, and on the other hand, like you, you hear some other places like, oh, it's amazing, and yeah, the hookups, this and And what you know, when I first started doing the research on casual sex, that was the most striking thing to me. Even in the scientific articles, all you would see is this very negative, very kind of doomsday portrayal of casual sex, even in some of the article names. And I'm never going to forget that one article name that was the casualties of casual sex. Oh like, Damn. Wow. <laughs> scary. Oh my God. Am I, I going to die? Like, <laughs> What's yeah. going to happen to me if I have casual sex? Which was a funny title for that article because it didn't really show much difference between the two groups, the people who were having and not having casual sex, but that's a whole other story. But as I was reading some of those articles, it was kind of in based on my experiences that I was having a casual sex that I knew, knew other people were, I was like, there is no way that this is an either or kind of thing. There are factors here that moderate that relationship. They, that 
that relationship depends on whether casual sex is going to be a good experience or a bad experience. And when you, when you look at the data, there's a lot of mixed findings, right? Some studies will find, yeah, the people who are having casual sex have somewhat lower, let's say, self-esteem or depression or anxiety. Uh, others will find somewhat higher. Many others will find no differences, no significant differences between the groups. And what that indicated to me was really there are these different factors and that what we need to look at is how are people going about this? What are they actually doing? Are they the right kind of person to be having casual sex? Are they doing it in ways that are healthy or promoting of health and a good time, or are they doing it in ways that it doesn't? And so kind of my doctoral research was on that, looking at some of these factors. I specifically looked at motivation. Why were people doing this? Why were they having casual sex? I looked at some personality characteristics like sociosexuality are kind of propensity or personality trait that is our tendency toward casual sex or away from it, like how comfortable we are having sex with people we don't know very well and don't have a lot of emotional connection or attachment. And there are other folks who've done research looking at some of some other factors like social stigma, like sexual health, and to what extent people are actually thinking about or protecting their sexual health as they go about it. And so the way I think about it is, look, casual sex is a higher risk behavior. There's no doubt about that. It's it's less known of a quantity than romantic sex. This is someone relatively new that you don't necessarily know who you don't know what they like. They don't know what you like necessarily. You don't know what their sexual history might be. So you don't know what their behavior towards you is going to be the next day. So there's, there are a lot of unknowns. There's certainly more unknown than there are with romantic, long-term romantic sex. So it's more unpredictable. Yeah, it's more unpredictable. Yeah. Higher risk. But what higher risk means is, yeah, things could go wrong, are more likely to potentially go wrong. But they're also very likely to go right. And then you get a really big boost and really kind of nice kind of reward that you get out of it. And for those of us, especially who are high on novelty seeking and exploration and sociosexuality, who like those kinds of things, it's really exciting. It's that reward can be quite rewarding. <laughs> so my approach to that is know yourself and know the kinds of things that you need to minimize the risks of the, the probability of things going wrong and maximize the probability of things going right and kind of looking at some of those factors that contribute to that. Yeah, and I think that's well said that it really depends a lot on your personality and who you are and I think this is true for sex more broadly, that the better you know yourself, the better off you're going to be in terms of how you manage and navigate your sex life. So for example, when it comes to acting on a given sexual fantasy, you need to kind of know how you're likely to respond in, say, a new 
situation or one where it's stressful and uncertain. Like, for example, I find in my own research on fantasies that people who are really high in the trait of neuroticism, which involves not dealing well with stress and having a bit more emotional instability, they don't report as positive of experiences when it comes to acting on novelty fantasies because trying something that's new and different is inherently stressful. And if you don't deal well with stress, there's more risk of things going wrong there. So I think the the know yourself advice is really good. And I would imagine it probably also depends a lot too on you know, this idea of moral incongruency that we hear talked a lot about when it comes to, to sexual behavior. So for example, when you have somebody who uses porn, but they feel morally conflicted about using porn, right? Because their religion tells them they shouldn't do it. Then the effects of watching porn tend to be negative for them because you have all this shame and guilt that goes along with it. Would you say that there's that same sort of moral incongruency in the world of casual sex as well? Absolutely. I think there's that anywhere where you might have attitudes that are not in line with your desires. And I've been thinking a lot about kind of how to you know, translate some of the science that we have to people in a way that can be useful. And I think thinking about what are your desires? Like, what do you want to do? What do you crave? Do you crave this experience? So that's where the, that autonomous motivation comes in that something that sounds exciting, fun, pleasurable, and so on. So what do you crave? And then are your attitudes, your values on board? It's really important that your values, what you think is the right thing to do, the moral thing to do is in line with the thing that you are craving so that when you behave in that way, you have both your desires and your values on board. If you have incongruency with either one, it's a problem. Then we see negative outcomes. That's what my kind of research on sociosexuality was showing, right? That the people who are higher on the trait of, who are more unrestricted on sociosexuality, they benefited from their casual sex experiences, whereas those who were restricted on sociosexuality were not benefiting. And there was some indication that their mental health was actually taking, taking a beating after having casual sex than after not having casual sex, which makes total sense. So yeah, I think that's really critical. Doing it for the right reasons like knowing what you're doing and then doing it for the right reasons, for these autonomous reasons, because you really want it, and not because other people are doing it or everyone else says that you should do it or because of some sort of pressure or internal pressure that you might be putting on yourself, making sure that your values are on board, and then making sure that some of these other things that could potentially lead to negative outcomes are taken care of as much as possible. So we know that sexual health is important. So think about what lowers your anxiety and risk around sexual health. And different people will have different approaches to sexual health. I'm not one of those who says, always use a condom, you know, for everything and everyone. Up to you and your partner, really. If you want to take a higher risk approach, who am I to tell you not to? But that depends on what's your risk tolerance level. Some of us have a much higher risk tolerance level than other people, right? There are people who, if they don't use a condom, the next day they're going to have a panic attack, right? That they got something. And there are other people who are like, oh yeah, no big deal. Oh, if, if I got chlamydia, no big deal. I'll, I'll go and 
take an antibiotic and it will be done within a day and other people who for whom it would be a big deal so kind of knowing again knowing that knowing yourself and then having the tools to do it in a way that's safe for you that feels safe for you yeah i think people should also think about things like substance use and to what extent they want to be intoxicated when engaging in some of these things because very often high levels of intoxication can lead to doing things you don't really want to do or didn't want to do, don't feel great about, don't remember the next day. So are you know, how, how okay are you with that? I think people should think about the social stigma aspect of it. Like who are they hooking up with? What are the circumstances? Who are the other people who might know about this or not know about this? So how to kind of protect themselves from the slut shaming that is a very real thing that comes as a result of, of casual sex. So yeah, I think all of those things should be taken into consideration. Those are all great tips for, you know, how to have good or better casual sex and how to approach it in the right way. And, you know, something else I'm thinking of, you know, as you're talking about all of this is also the piece of communication, which might be what you were going to be getting to next. And I know that this is so important from my research on friends with benefits, because people often start a friend with benefits situation without getting on the same page about what each partner wants. And so one partner might just be there for the sex and no strings attached, but the other partner is there looking at it as this is an opportunity to potentially start a romantic relationship with someone. And so when people go in with those really different expectations, I find that it often doesn't work out well. And so I think being aligned with your partner, communicating about that. And also if you're doing a long-term arrangement, getting on the same page about the ground rules, like are you allowed to have sex with other people? And are you allowed to spend the night? Like figuring all of that stuff out is really important. So anything else you'd add as another piece of advice for good casual sex? <laughs> the pleasure piece. Yeah. So the communication around boundaries and rules and expectations is really important. I'm glad you brought that up. And then especially if you are also doing it as part of a couple, right? if you're hooking up with other people, then as part of an open relationship, that's obviously super important to make sure that that's done in a way that's consensual and ethical and everyone's on board. But then there is the pleasure piece as well, which we know that especially in heterosexual relationships, there's a big orgasm gap. I mean, there's an orgasm gap between men and women anyway, in romantic relationships as well, with men much more likely to have orgasms than women. But when you look at casual sex, that gap is even larger. So the women are even less likely to come than in romantic sex. And so you have something like 40 per percentage points difference in whether they've had orgasm or not. I always think of this large study that, surveyed something like 20,000 undergrads from 20 different colleges around the U.S. <clears throat> asking them, did you have an orgasm the last time you had a hookup involving penetration? And these were all heterosexual students. 40% of the female students said they had an orgasm and 80%, 78% or something like that of the men. So literally 40% point difference. And I think that's something that we need to pay more attention to, that 
the norms, the social norms around how casual sex happens and what hookups are like, again, especially in heterosexual relationships, really prioritize the pleasure of men and leave the female orgasm sort of a nice bonus if it happens. And so it kind of makes it less likely to have the women walk away from it feeling like, oh my God, this was great. So I always, one of my non-negotiable tips is make sure you get pleasure and make sure you give pleasure. And of course, what exactly that means will differ from person to person, but I think it's really important for people who are going to be hooking up because we're hooking up with people who don't necessarily know us. Some may not care as much about our pleasure. So it's really important to be assertive. First of all, to know what it is that you want sexually from that situation. What are the kinds of sex acts? Like, do you need oral sex? Do you need fingering? Do you need a toy? Do you need anal stimulation in combination with this or that? What positions work for you? What kind of setting works for you? So you need to know that. And then you need to, you kind of have to find a way to communicate that to your partner and and assert these needs that you might have so that they can meet them. Because even if they want to meet them, they're not psychic. They don't know. And very often we don't have the language. We don't have easy communication around sexuality. So people are not going to ask. And when there's also that, very typical human thing that we do when we don't know, when the situation is ambiguous, we project our own desires to the other person. We think, well, if this works for me, it works for the other person. And unless we're told otherwise, we're just going to do that. So even when people want to be a good lover or don't want to be a bad lover, they might not know how to do that. So sexual assertiveness is important no matter what relationship people are in, but it's extra important in casual interactions because of that lack of familiarity. Yeah. And I also want to really encourage people to try to try to bring in at least some amount of passion and intimacy in casual interactions. One of the things that I think are norms around what casual means is that there's no intimacy at all. Like there's this complete emotional distance and it's just the physical act of having sex in these hookups. And what we know from research is that when there's somewhat more closeness and intimacy and passion, everyone walks away from it feeling like this was a better experience, a more satisfying experience. And so I really want to encourage people for better hookups to have some amount of that passion and intimacy, they can be very casual. It doesn't have to extend beyond that hour or day or week long period. But while we're with our casual partners to try to give and connect with them as much as we can. Yeah, I think that's such an important point and great advice. And it's also true that one of the things that people are often looking for in casual sex is more than just sex. They also want an intimate piece that goes along with it. And I know Justin Garcia at the Kinsey Institute has done some work on this where he's found that most people want 
things that aren't casual from casual sex, right? So casual sex is kind of a misnomer in some ways in that it's not just about this act of pure physical pleasure. So don't be afraid to have a little intimacy in it. And it's okay if you want to cuddle afterwards and, you know, do all these other things, just get on the same page with your partner about, you know, what this is and what it isn't. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up Justin Garcia's study. Cause when you look at some of those numbers in, you ask people, right? Like, what were you looking for? What were your motives for this hookup? Sexual satisfaction, emotional satisfaction or connection. Sexual satisfaction and emotional connection are often almost identical. I mean, the sexual satisfaction might be a little higher in terms of what people were looking for, but emotional connection is not too far behind. And people often think, oh, that's just the women. You know, that's what women are after. No, men are after that too. It's the, it's the other nourishing element of what a sexual interaction can bring into our lives. So yeah, don't skip on that. It's going to be a better experience for everyone involved. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. So we have much more to discuss, including Jana's work on consensual non-monogamy. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Promescent has everything you need for amazing sex, including their signature delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men increase their stamina in the bedroom. It has Target's own technology, which allows you to desensitize only the areas you want and customize it for your body. Check it out and see why it has thousands of five-star reviews. It's also recommended by more than 2,000 medical professionals. Promescent offers a number of other sexual wellness products, including their Vitaflux supplements, female arousal gel, and line of personal lubricants that come in water-based, silicon, and organic varieties. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders and free shipping on orders over $10. Also, all orders come in discreet, plain white bubble mailers to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T.com. And we're back. My guest today is sex researcher, Dr. Jana Vrangalova. And our next topic is consensual non-monogamy. Now, I've got lots of thoughts and questions on consensual non-monogamy because I do a lot of research in this area. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how do you know if monogamy or non-monogamy is right for you? And you know, you hear a lot out there in the media where, you know, some people say, oh, we're all meant for monogamy or we're all meant for non-monogamy. And, you know, it's, it's hard to sort through a lot of those arguments. So, so how do you know what is the right type of relationship for you? A million dollar question. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting question and there's no simple answer to that necessarily. The narratives of humans are monogamous or humans are non-monogamous as a species kind of putting all of us into the same basket makes no sense to me that would be kind of like saying humans are extroverted or humans are introverted like yeah some of us are introverted and some of us are extroverted and many of us are somewhere in between so it's a continuum and i think of monogamy and non-monogamy as a continuum as well in terms of our desires, that some of us are quite monogamous and would be very, very happy in long-term monogamy, and they're not seeking out, and they don't really need, and wouldn't 
add to their quality of life to have additional partners. Some of us are super, super highly promiscuous, non-monogamous, and would be miserable in monogamy. And then many of us are somewhere in between. What exactly determines that? I think it's still kind of an open scientific question, and I would love to you know, do more research on that and figure that out. Some of my hypotheses at the moment have to do a lot with things like novelty seeking, right? Where are we on that sexual novelty seeking in particular? Where are we on the sociosexuality spectrum? Sex drive, I think, plays a role in that. I think something more like emotional novelty seeking as well, because it's not just the you know, wanting new different sexual partners. Some of us also kind of want new different emotional romantic connections with people. And some can be driven a lot more by that in their non-monogamy pursuits than by the, the, the sexual component of that. And so just like with everything else, right, there's some biological reasons for it. There's some experiential and cultural reasons for why we end up wherever we end up on that continuum. And then, of course, a lot of our desire in a moment to have multiple partners or not has to do with our kind of current life circumstances and kind of what's been going on and what else is kind of happening in our lives, how much of maybe sexual or emotional novelty we've been getting so there's the novelty piece. We also want stability and safety and security. And you know, the stuff that Esther Perel talks about is these kind of opposing in a way drives that we have. And very often, if we've had a lot of stability and security, very often we like this other bucket seems empty and we want to go and fill that bucket. And sometimes we've had so much novelty that we kind of want secure. So these things can shift and change over the course of our lives. I also think very often non-monogamous desires can also be driven by the fact that one person cannot really satisfy all of our sexual needs and the likelihood that we have a partner, one partner who we're going to be perfectly compatible, who's going to share all of our sexual or, or romantic and emotional kinds of needs and desires and fantasies, highly unlikely. So yeah, I think all of these things play a role in why and where someone falls in just in the basic desire yeah. to have multiple partners. Yeah. And I would agree with you that it's, it's definitely a biopsychosocial phenomenon. You know, there's probably some evolutionary backdrop to this and it would make sense that humans would evolve so that different people would have different mating strategies, right? If we all had the same mating strategy, it would be harder for us to survive as a species. And you'd have a lot of losers in that equation if everybody was trying the same thing. So from an evolutionary perspective, it makes sense that you'll see different strategies, but then biologically, you know, there's some research suggesting that, you know, some people might just be wired to want more casual sex or non-monogamy. Lisa Don Hamilton has done some neuroscience work in this area where she shows that the brains of non-monogamous men and monogamous men, like they respond differently to, to sexual stimuli. So it says there's, there's something happening in the brain, but then it's also responsive to our environment and you know what's happening in our life and i think it's really interesting when i look at my research on sexual fantasies and i look at 
people at different ages and what their fantasies are, I see this interesting pattern with the non-monogamy fantasies where interest is actually lowest when people are in their late teens and early 20s, but it rises through the 30s, reaches a peak in the 40s, and then starts to decline somewhat after that. And you see that that pattern holds for both men and women, but men have a higher baseline interest in non-monogamy than women do, right? So there's also a gender effect that's involved there. So, you know, it's really complex. There's lots of things going on there. But I guess, you know, my my question for you is, so you run this course called Open Smarter, where you want to help people figure out, you know, what's the right relationship for you and how do you make it work? So what's your process for, you know, just at a general level, you don't have to give away your trade secrets, but, <laughs> um, you know, how do you help somebody identify what the right relationship is for them? And is it more about the personality piece or about the needs and desires they have? Like, what is it that you're looking for there to help guide them along that path? All of the above. So we look at the personality. I think personality matters a lot. It is something that's relatively stable and that's a big part of who we are that has biological heritable basis and, and not just a biological basis, but something that because of that biological basis was then reinforced through experience because our initial kind of tendencies start to come out very early on and then they push us in directions that are kind of consistent. So if someone is kind of like a high novelty seeker, right, they're going to seek out novel experiences and probably get rewarded a lot when doing some of those things. And so you become more and more set in those ways. So that biological predisposition then ends up getting reinforced throughout life. So in Open Smarter, we go through some of the personality traits that matter, specifically novelty seeking, and also delve into some of these other needs and desires and to what extent are they being met in a particular relationship. And I think the first thing I like people to think about is that general continuum of complete monogamy, complete openness and the different versions of like monogamishness mm-hmm. in between, which I personally think is probably that, that in between, because most of us are in between, most of us are not on the extreme ends of that continuum, probably some version of in between in terms of the relationship style would be the most authentic version for for how to run our relationships. And then we also get into some of the other personality constraints because it's not just about what do you want. It's also like what can you take? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? And because sometimes we might have these desires, we might have these fantasies for threesomes for opening up, but it feels so scary and so painful and potentially distressing and disruptive to our lives to act on those that we choose not to, right? So we might be somewhere in that middle on the non-monogamy spectrum, but then if we have really high jealousy, really high attachment anxiety, low emotional resilience, you know, things like neuroticism and low emotional regulation skills, low cognitive flexibility, those kinds of things, then it might be a very kind of big hill to climb and it might be more trouble than it's worth 
to try to actually have some sort of an open relationship. And we know there is some research, there's not tons of research on some of these things, but there is some research looking at attachment patterns, right? Finding that people who are high on attachment anxiety are more satisfied in monogamy than they are in non-monogamous relationship. Whereas people who are low in attachment anxiety, you don't see that difference. They seem to be equally satisfied in monogamy and non-monogamy. And so that's not to say that people high on attachment anxiety can't have open relationships or people high on jealousy or whatever, but it is an obstacle that is going to make things a bit more difficult for these people. And so you kind of have to put things on the scale, like what's more worth it to you? And are you willing to do the extra work, emotional work, partner work? It's time, energy. Do you have, do you have the time and energy? Do you have the luxury of managing one relationship is a lot of work. So, you know, just talk about managing multiple relationships. It adds an extra layer of stress and complexity uh, to your calendar. But yeah. And, you know, and as one example, I remember I was at a conference once with a polyamorous friend who we were supposed to meet for cocktails and they came in like an hour after me and were just like, oh my God, I'm exhausted because I just had to call all of my partners and like do this like formal check-in with all of them before they could come like meet me for a drink. And I'm like, gosh, that does sound a little <laughs> bit exhausting, right? So, you know, when it comes to having any kind of open or polyamorous relationship, you know, there are benefits that you can get out of that sexual and non-sexual, but it also brings its own set of logistical challenges and stressors. And you have to be up for the challenge to make it work. Yep. Yeah. I mean, everything has its pros and cons, right? Everything has its benefits and challenges. And and so, yeah, it, it does, does take some searching, like inner soul searching for what are the things that really matter to you? What obstacles are you willing to try to get over which obstacles seem like too much. And that can also tell you what kind of, if you're going to push a little bit outside of the monogamy box, how are you going to do that? You know, are you going to have a relationship where there's a lot of disclosure, where you actually get to know or get to hear all the details that your partner might be doing with someone else? Does your partner, do you want to tell your partner, or are you going to keep the disclosure level relatively low and maybe maybe even a complete don't ask, don't tell. Like that, that's a continuum as well. They can go from complete disclosure to complete, I guess, non-disclosure. Are you going to play together versus separately? Are you going to have only casual sexual interactions with other people that you're going to be seeing you and your partner, or are you going to allow for these more romantic connections to develop? And so, which is when some of those things like how susceptible to infatuation are you? You know, some of us like fall in love. The the minute we have like one good sexual experience with someone, it's like, Oh my God, I'm in love. You know, you kind of lose your head over that one person and other people are a little more, I don't know, even keeled or chill when it comes to some of those connections. And that can make a big difference in how you navigate your open relationship. Like, are you going to try to, and to what extent are you going to try to put some containers around what you can do with other people, how much intimacy you're going to bring into your casual sex, how often are you going to see these other partners and so on? Are you going to have sleepovers or not? Are you going to go on trips 
or not. Um, and so we kind of, yeah, look into some of all of these things. We look into the sexual health risk tolerance levels, because obviously that's mm-hmm. one of the biggest concerns that people have around consensual non-monogamy is like, how do I protect my own and my partner's sexual health when you're having multiple partners? And obviously there are all the different tools of the trade for how to do that. But going back to what I was saying earlier in the context of casual sex, it's like, okay, what is your risk tolerance levels? What is your preference around that? And then how do you bring that in line with what your partner's sexual health risk tolerance levels might be? So yeah, we go through this whole set of things that we know some of it from research from For some of it, there is research. For a lot of it, there isn't research, but there's a lot of anecdotal evidence. There's a lot of experiential evidence from the people doing concessional non-monogamy on what are these important factors that can kind of make or break your attempt to open up and where do you stand currently in terms of your skills and personality that you have at the moment? And then what do you need to develop or work on if you want to develop or work on something to make things, to increase your chances of this not being sort of a blind, you know, shooting in the dark kind of crapshoot <laughs> thing, <laughs> being a little more intentional, being a bit more educated and thoughtful about how you're going to approach that process. Yeah. And as you're saying all of this, I'm thinking about all of the people over the years who have approached me asking, how do I open up my relationship? You know, <laughs> and it's like, holy shit, there's a lot <laughs> to consider here. It's not just one thing. And there are so many different questions that you have to consider in terms of whether this is right for you, whether it's right for your partner, what are the rules going to be? What are your boundaries? How do you navigate this? And so the way I like to think about it is that this is kind of like a designer relationship where you you have to customize it. Everything. Customize everything. everything. <laughs> everything. You have to customize it all to the needs of you and your partner and your personalities and find a way to make that work if you want to explore it. Because if you don't put all of that work in to start with, it increases the odds that it's not going to turn out well. And I think it's also really important for people who are thinking about opening up a relationship to do that from a position of strength, right? Where you've worked on communication and trust and intimacy with your partner before you start bringing other people into the mix. Because people who try to open a relationship to save, say, a failing marriage, that's where things often run into problems. And that just feeds into the perception that open relationships never work. And they can and do. And if you look at the data, people in sexually open relationships, those relationships are just as happy, healthy, satisfying, and long-lasting as monogamous relationships on average, right? It's just to make it work, you have to find a way to to balance all of those things that Shauna was talking about. Yeah. And it's so true that so often people come to opening up without the knowledge, without having done that pre-work. And honestly, because there's so few role models, there are so few rules out there to kind of gu- or guidelines to guide these explorations, so much stigma around it and secrecy. And so people often try it out and they get burned. 
so badly. Like I have a lot of people in my course uh, right now because um, I'm teaching this course live at the moment, even though people can take it on their own time. There's a, all the pre-recorded videos and surveys, quizzes, personality quizzes that they can take and all that. But there are so many students in the class who have tried some sort of opening up and because they didn't approach it the right way, they didn't do all that work that we're doing now, they ended up hurting themselves, hurting their partners, doing stupid shit, honestly. <laughs> and it's not surprising when there isn't education and role models, that's what happens. And what you pointed out is very important when you're opening up from an existing relationship. It is important for that relationship to have at least some moderate level of relationship of good relationship quality. It doesn't have to be like the best possible, you know, relationship that meets every possible need or whatever. I mean, sometimes it's great to open up from that place and some people do, but it, I, I don't think it's necessary that it's a, like a hundred percent or 90%, but you want to be opening up at least from like a 60, 70% of like solid connection, trust, intimacy, commitment to one another, wanting to be together and to continue to be together. It is true that some, sometimes people will open up as a, as kind of a stepping stone to actually breaking up. And yeah, that's, that's not going to work as an open relationship, but it can certainly work as a method of <laughs> breaking up. It's <laughs> sure as a relationship exit strategy, but yeah. you know, it, it, it's really just more, you know, not necessarily the right solution to fix a failing relationship. So if people are interested in taking your open smarter course, where can they go to learn more about it? My website, drjana.com slash open dash smarter is where they can find all of the information about what they'll find in the course and how to sign up and yeah, come join. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for this wonderful conversation. I really appreciate your time and I wish you a lot of success with the course and with all of your other efforts and helping to take the science of sex and spread it to the public. So thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Justin. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the podcast. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, if you want to learn more about the science of sexual fantasy and desire and how to communicate about that with your partner. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.